important public health in the Delaware River Basin and beyond. DamascusCitizens.org This is Rosie Starr for Radio Catskill. Welcome to Farm and Country, locally produced radio about rural life in the Catskills and the Delaware River Valley. On today's show, the Star Talk report produced by Keith Hubbard highlights the draconian meteor shower best viewed after sunset. Sweetwater fishing guide Evan Padua has an October seasonal report for the Upper Delaware River. In her segment, Now You Know, Stephanie Phillips visits the Bastiakel Winery and speaks with owner Paul Danino. All of that coming up on today's Farm and Country here on Radio Catskill. But first, news headlines from NPR. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. A congressional stalemate over federal spending has more than 3,500 federal transportation workers furloughed. Lawmakers have yet to sign off on federal highway funds, but the Senate is expected to approve a stopgap bill to resolve the problem for 30 days. In the House, a lack of unity over the White House infrastructure spending bill brought President Biden himself to the Hill yesterday to rally the rank and file. Today, Congresswoman Joyce Beatty, Chair of the Congressional Black Caucus expressed optimism that differences could be resolved. No matter where we stood prior to yesterday, every member of the caucus supports an infrastructure bill. Every member supports making sure that we complete the Build Back Better plan. She spoke on ABC's Good Morning America. Progressive and conservative Democrats are at odds over the size of the spending bill with left-of-center members pushing for more. The number of COVID-19 deaths in this country continues to climb. Now more than 700,000 Americans have died from the viral illness. But as NPR's Joe Palka reports, there's a new drug that's been shown to reduce the risk of hospitalization and death for people with the disease. The drug is called Molnupiravir. It's being produced by the drug maker Merck in partnership with Ridgeback Biotherapeutics. The drug's effectiveness was demonstrated in a large study. Some 775 volunteers with COVID-19 were assigned to two groups. One group got the drug, the other a placebo. The people getting the drug were half as likely to be hospitalized or die from COVID, 14% in the placebo group compared to 7% in the treatment group. The companies plan to petition the FDA for emergency use authorization to distribute the drug. Joe Palka, NPR News. The Women's March returns to Washington, D.C. today. The weather will be picture-perfect as thousands are expected on the streets of the nation's capital. Similar marches are planned for cities around the country just over a month after a new abortion law went into effect in Texas. NPR's Windsor Johnston has details. This year's Women's March is being held to protest a newly passed law in Texas that bans abortions at around six weeks, even before most women know that they're pregnant. The Supreme Court was asked to intervene and block the legislation, but declined to do so, sparking protests in Washington, D.C. and in cities across the nation. This will be the group's first march since last October when protesters rallied against former President Donald Trump's then-Supreme Court nominee Amy Coney Barrett. 
The Women's March was a worldwide protest on January 21, 2017, the day after the inauguration of Trump. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. This is NPR. Support comes from Van Gorder's Furniture, featuring Lodge and Adirondack styles as well as rustic collections. With showrooms at Lake Wall and Popic, Downtown Honesdale, and Milford, PA. Van Gorder's Furniture brings the outdoors inside. VanGorders.com. This is Rosie Starr. Welcome back to Farm and Country. Coming up on today's show, sweetwater fishing guide Evan Padua gets buggy in his report for the Upper Delaware River. Stephanie Phillips highlights the Bashakill Winery with guest Paul Danino. But first, here's Keith Hubbard with the celestial scoop on this week's draconian meteor shower. Thank you for joining us for this week's locally produced Farm and Country. Country, I'm Keith Hubbard, and this is Star Talk. The Draconin meteor shower will be the first of two meteor showers in October. The meteor shower radiates from Draco the Dragon, which slithers between the Big and Little Dippers in the sky. The source of the Draconids is a comet known by the unassuming name of 21P Giacobini Zinner. The comet last flew by Earth in 2018 on its 6.6-year journey that takes it beyond the orbit of Jupiter. In 1985, the comet became the first comet to be visited by a spacecraft when the International Cometary Explorer passed through its plasma tail. While most meteor showers are best viewed after midnight, the Draconids will be best viewed right after sunset. The waxing crescent moon will set just before 8 p.m. on Friday, so you will have a moon-free night to view the Draconids. The meteor shower rarely offers more than five meteors an hour, and this year's shower will not be expected to yield an increased rate of meteors. The Draconids blanketed the sky with thousands of meteors per hour in 1933 and 1946. More recently, in 2011. The Draconids produced an outburst, treating European stargazers with 600 meteors per hour. Head out after sunset for an hour or two on Friday night and look to the north to watch the Draconid meteor shower. If you have any questions, comments, or ideas for future Star Talk segments, my email address is startalk@farmingcountry.org. For Farming Country and Star Talk, this has been Keith Hubbard. Reminding you to keep looking up. For Radio Catskill and Farm and Country, this is Evan Padua bringing you Hooked on Fishing.
As October begins, we are nearing the end of flying ant season. No, I don't mean Aunt Susie's visiting for a vacation. I mean little black ants that are flying around our atmosphere, chasing little ant princesses to mate. These ants can and will be seen throughout September and into early October. The swarms of black ants are having left their colonies to pursue a female mate. Then the male bug will die shortly after the mating, often above rivers like our upper Delaware, leading to the fish feeding on dying flying ants which land on the river's surface. Many trout, fallfish, and smallmouth bass can be caught using black ant fly imitation patterns on a fly rod. Keep your eye out for these interesting droves of ants. October is a time of change in fish feeding patterns. It is a month where water temperature is often steadily declining throughout the month. This leads to fish moving habitat locations. Smallmouth bass will move to afternoon sun exposed shallow shorelines but they like to be near and in deeper, slow, flowing water as well. Brown trout are heading into a pre-spawn feed at this time. The brown trout will be moving into shallow gravel bottom areas and building a small spawning bed referred to as a red. Once the water temperatures are steadily below 50 degrees, the brown trout will begin a two to four week spawning period and angling for them is not recommended. The rainbow trout in the upper Delaware are beautiful and feisty throughout the fall months. Most can be caught in shallow, fast water. Some move into deep, slow pools. Those deep, slow pools are where the schools of walleye can also be found all fall season. Be careful while angling during the fall season. The water is cold and swift. Be sure to wear a properly fitted life jacket to ensure your safety. Windy days when many leaves come out of the trees are often not good for fishing in the fall. You will catch a lot of sticks and leaves, not as many fish. Keep an eye on steady, calm weather patterns for good fishing outings. For Radio Catskill, Farm and Country, and Hooked on Fishing, this has been Evan Padua, casting off. Stephanie Phillips with Now You Know for Farm and Country. I'm at Bashakill Vineyards today, which, unlikely as it may seem, is roughly in the middle of the Bashakill Wildlife Refuge. 
My guest is Paul Danino, who owns this charming winery here in Wurtsboro, New York. I moved up here in 2001. I just love to fish and hunt, and I love the outdoors, and I had a lot of roots here, too. My grandfather, when he got out of the war in the 40s, he moved his family out of Brooklyn, and they moved up to West Brookville, and they started an egg business, collecting candle eggs and pack them up and then ship them to the city. So my mother was raised up here, and I came up as a kid visiting my grandparents, and I said, I love the country up here. And then I was lucky enough to buy this property. And at the time, the previous owner used to be uh, Captain Frank's uh, boat rental at the time before it was anything. So there were boats on the Bashakil water here. Correct. There were rowboats, rentals, and then his son didn't keep the business going, Rudy Zerl at the time. And I bought the property. And pretty much at the time, I was doing the IT work and commuting. And I hated my day job. And then a trip out to California. I was out there. We went to Napa Valley. I always liked wine. Italian family. We always drank wine. And uh, they were telling me in California that New York was a big wine region. And I never even knew this. And that kind of gave me the idea to look into winemaking. I started taking seminars at Cornell. And one thing led to another. And we ended up becoming the first farm winery in Sullivan County. Hmm. Is this actually a good climate for grapes? With climate change, the Northeast is actually getting better. Winters are actually a little warmer than normal. The rain is the tough part. We have a lot more rainfall, which promotes more disease, especially growing organically. The organic sprays don't last as long. I have to spray more often. It's definitely a lot more labor-intensive. Yeah, I have a few Concord grape vines, and the Japanese beetles just love them. Oh, yes, yes. Japanese beetles, for young vines, they can be very destructive. They can defoliate the whole young vine and kill the vine. When the vines mature, it's more just cosmetic. The only thing I found that works is it's a product called milky spore. So you apply that to the ground, and it'll eat the grubs. And it's good for about five years. I found the traps, at least in my case, that seem to draw more in, if anything. But the young vines, I'll just get out there early in the morning and dust it. I'll just kind of knock them into a can. It's, again, labor-intensive, but for organic growing, that, that and the milky spore is the only thing i found that works. What kind of grapes do you grow here? We grow two hybrids. I've tried planting different varieties, but the two that seem to work the best here for me is we grow one grape called Cayuga White. They're not as hardy, but very disease-resistant, and those are the ones that we're going to be doing some replants on. It makes a really nice sparkling wine that we produce. We also grow a Minnesota grape called Marquette, and that's crossed from the grape Pinot Noir. It's a shorter growing season. It's super hardy. It can handle like negative 20. It just laughs at the winter. It makes a really nice rosé. We do a dry sparkling rosé out of that. The yields are smaller, and they are smaller red grapes, so we have to net all the vines because the birds, we live in a bird sanctuary, so the birds will do a number. And once the birds peck at them, then the bees come in. So you have to be really on top of that. Paul, can you tell us what's involved in growing your grapes for wine? How do you start the vines and how do you maintain them? So first thing we do is we always check the pH of the soil. It's really important. You don't want it too acidic. You want like a pH about six, between six, six and a half. You might have to add lime down. Then we first you want to also dig a couple of four-foot holes. You want to make sure you have a good rooting system, no real thick clay. We're lucky. Where we are in the, around the Bashakil, we have very good soil. Most of Sullivan County, it gets 
very thick clay, but we have it's more loose sandy around, especially down the bottom part fields. And then from there, we usually plant buckwheat, and then we let the buckwheat grow. We till that into the soil. Then we'll plant a winter rye, and then the following spring we'll disc that, and then we'll ready for planting. And then we usually auger about 14 inches deep, so the put the vines right in so they have a nice deep rooting. And then the first year, you just want the vines, you don't touch them, just let them establish a rooting system. Second year, you want to start the trunk, trellis them. And third year, you can take a couple grapes, and then by the fourth year, you can take a full crop off them. And how long do they keep producing grapes? I mean, if everything goes well. If everything goes well, they'll outlive me. (laughs) So (laughs) they should be here. uh, But, you know, with farming, you never know. You said that everything doesn't necessarily grow well. What happened with all this rain that we had? Yeah, we had a tough year. The people I buy grapes from, they actually had a really good year. But from the the vines that we had that were they said were weak from winter damage, they just got a lot of disease in them. We had a lot of funguses, and except for the Marquette, the Marquette did very well. But we had we had some trouble on half the vineyard. We had to pull out, and we're gonna. We planted this wheat year. Our one side has all buckwheat, and we're going to we're just reestablishing the soil. I'm going to do a lot of replants next year. I see that grapevines usually are trimmed very tightly. The pruning seems to be a special skill. How do you do that? Pruning is done usually in the late February, like early March. That's like quiet time in the winter, so I get to do all the pruning then. You want to prune them down to like between 12 to 20 buds, depending on the variety. You don't want to overcrop a grape because then you won't get good quality grapes. You'll have too many clusters on there. And there's two different styles of pruning. You can do a a cane or a spur pruning. Cane is better in the colder climates because you have more flexibility. If you have more bud damage, you can actually leave longer canes and extra buds. And that kind of helps you to deal with winter damage. What happens if you just let them grow, which is how my grapes are? They're all over the place. What'll happen if they'll just produce too many grapes and also they'll get covered with too much foliage. So you, you want what you call the canopy. When you're looking at a row of vine, you always want to see a little light through there and that allows good airflow and that helps with disease pressure. So if you just let it keep growing, each bud's going to keep creating new shoots, which is going to create more clusters and then Grapes are not going to fully ripen. They're fine for picking and eating, but you're not going to get a good quality wine grape. So they're not good for espalier because they're against a wall. Uh, yeah, but you can do some overhead trellising. You could figure something out like that, or you can use them for decorative. Grape vines are very beautiful. So now I know what's wrong with my grapes. <laughs> when do you harvest your grapes? The earliest I harvest, actually, we're going to be harvesting next week, which will be mid-September. That's the Marquette, and that's the Minnesota hybrid. It was actually grown to be a short-season grape because they have a shorter season out there. And they're one of the first grapes we'll be uh, harvesting. And then the harvest will go right through probably mid-October. Of course, every year is different. Sometimes it's a little earlier, sometimes a little later, all depending on the weather. In the fall, you really want a dry fall, just let everything ripen. Sometimes you get too much rain in the fall and you have no choice to pick things early just because they'll fall apart from the weather. Do you use some kind of scissors and cut them off or do you pull them off? How, how do you get the bunches of grapes? So we have little uh, harvest snips and I actually invite a bunch of friends. We have our regular staff, but I always have a bunch of friends. We always provide them food and some drinks afterwards and 
we have a good time taking them off. But once you start, you want to get them all off, and then you want to bring them right to the crusher. You want to get them processed as fast as possible. So you're not stamping on the grapes to get the juice out. Yes, there's no feet in our grapes, in our wine. (laughs) We have a crusher to stemmer. We have one guy pulling out any leaves, making sure they look like good, clean clusters. They're thrown into a crusher and looks like a big type of uh, paddle that beats them up. One end, it'll bounce the clusters through this paddle in this cage. And one end, the stems will fall out. And then the grape must will be pumped out without any stems. And that is pumped directly into our open fermenters for the red grapes. When we're doing a white wine, there's another step to it. Instead of pumping directly into our fermenter, we're pumping it into our press. So we're going to be pressing the must right then. So you're just getting the raw juice. With red wine, for every 13 pounds, you're getting a gallon of wine. For white wines, for every 14 pounds of grapes, you get a gallon. It's a little less because you're pressing it right away. And uh, there's a lot of sugar still in there. It's a little jammier. So you're getting a little less juice. With uh, red wines, you're crushing it. Then you're fermenting it, and then you're pressing it like about a week later. And it's already a raw wine there, so you'll get more liquid out of it. So it's not that the grapes are white or purple. What color are your grapes? So, yeah, you can actually make a white wine from a a red grape and also like a rosé. Champagne grapes, they use Pinot Noir, Chardonnay, and Pinot Noir is a red grape. Our Cayugas are white, and our Marquette is uh, a a very red grape that we make a rosé out of. It all depends what kind of style you're making. For the red wines, we're fermenting on the skins. That's why they say it's healthier, because in the skins you get all the antioxidants, and it's getting extracted when you're fermenting. Okay, so now you have the juice. What do you do next? Okay, so with the white wine, we crushed it, and then we pressed it, and now we have the raw juice. So the first thing we'll do is we'll check the sugar level and also the pH and the acid. From there, if... We do need to add a little sugar. A lot of times in Northeast, we have a similar climate to like Germany. Uh, We have sometimes higher acids and uh, lower sugars. We'll actually add organic sugar just to get to the right alcohol level. A lot of varieties, you do not have to do this. Some varieties you do. From there, we'll add a little organic yeast nutrients, and then we'll hydrate a yeast, and we'll put the yeast on the grape must. A trick I always done was, because the grape must is usually cold then, I'll just put the yeast rate on t- hydrated yeast rate on top, and then I'll heat the room. And then the following morning, then I'll mix it in so the yeast isn't shocked. And then uh, within 24 hours, I've never had a stuck fermentation. It usually gets going from there. So the grapes don't just naturally have yeast on them? Well, they do. They all do. That white powder you see on a grape, that is a wild yeast. And a lot of people, they make wine from wild yeast. They do wild fermentations. But you're not going to get a consistent flavors. I use specific wine yeast for specific wines I'm making. So I get more of the same outcome. I use one that gives you more fruit flavors. They eat more of the malic acid so I can make a style of wine. I make a specific one for my red wines. They usually give you like a bolder flavor. So that's why I use specific yeast so I can have my wines be a little more consistent. Paul, you've only got us up through the fermentation. How long does that take, and then what do you do to end up with these wines in the bottle? Okay, so after the primary fermentation, for the white wines, you want to do a slower, cooler fermentation. We can take up to like two to three weeks, at least the style I do, and that brings you more fruit flavors. For the red, I want to do a hotter, faster fermentation, 
and that'll extract more colors, a little bit more color, get a deeper color, especially in the, in the grape and the wine. And then I'll press that right after about a week. And then from there, it goes to a secondary fermentation. From that, we actually add bacteria to the wine, and they call this uh, malolactic fermentation. And that bacteria eats the malic acid and converts it to lactic acid. And that's what gives you that buttery finish like they have in Chardonnays or a lot of red wines. Are you fermenting in barrels, like classic wooden barrels? The actual fermenting is done in stainless tanks, but then the aging process is done in barrels. And yes, we use we very do things the old school way. We use mostly American oak, but I do have a couple of French oak barrels. We actually have a 40-foot cave that's dug into the hill. All our red wines are aged for two years in there. They're very drinkable then. The white wines, they're processed and they're ready within a year. And that's where we store all our barrels. So it gives you a steady temperature. It does fluctuate a little bit from summer to winter, but it's very gradual. So you don't have that sharp up and downs of the temperature that could damage the wine. It's a, you really need a nice aging process. And the humidity is also higher in there. So it has less evaporation out of the barrels. And we do use a UV filter in there to kill any bacteria in the air. And Paul, do you use sulfites in your wine processing? We do use some sulfites. To me, adding sulfites is part of the winemaking process. Romans actually burn sulfur candles in barrels, so they've been doing it for a long time. And you always have about 10 parts per million of sulfites naturally occurring from fermentation. I don't add a lot. You're allowed up to 300 parts per million. I add only about 50 parts per million. So I tell people don't age our wines over four or five years just because I don't add a lot of sulfites. There is a few people that are allergic, but... If you're eating dried fruit, that has like 10 times the amount of sulfites than wine does. What is the effect? What is the purpose of the sulfite? It's a preservative. It's going to cause less oxidation in the wine, let it not spoil. We had only about 50 parts per million of sulfites. We keep it at a lower level. For me, it's a part of winemaking. You also want to check the pH of the wine, too. If a wine's pH is over 3.6, it's unstable. So no matter how much sulfites you add to it, it can spoil. So it's a fine line. There is a lot of chemistry involved in winemaking. So now you have the fermented wine. Now how do you get it into the bottles? Okay. After it's fermented and it's aged, then we actually manually bottle everything. We have a crew of guys. We gravity feed the tank into a wine filler, and we have a six-bottle wine filler. And we have two manual corkers. So we we produce about 4,000 gallons a year. Half of our wines are in traditional bottles, and a lot of our wines we have in wine growlers. So we started actually kegging some wines, just kind of how they have beer in kegs. From the oak barrels, we actually put our wines in stainless kegs. And what the nice part about this is you push it with nitrogen, so oxygen never touches the wine these available wine growlers so people once they have the growler they can come back and they get a few dollars off they can refill their wine bottle and we still do the traditional bottle as well so if you wanted something a little fancier or if it's going to a restaurant or to a party or so so now you know a bit about making wine out of new york grapes our vineyard expert has been paul Danino, owner of bashakil vineyards Please send your suggestions for other topics and experts to Stephanie, S-T-E-P-H-A-N-I-E, at WJFFRadio.org. This has been Stephanie Phillips for Farm and Country.
hope that you enjoyed our show this week with production by Radio Catskill volunteers Keith Hubbard, Evan Padua, and Stephanie Phillips. Special thanks goes to our guest, Paul Danino from the Bashakill Winery. This has been your host, Rosie Starr. Thanks for listening to Farm and Country on Radio Catskill. Here's a note of interest for you. Sponsored by the Sullivan Renaissance Community Beautification Group, the biannual Garden Swap will take place Saturday, October 2nd from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. at the Tustin Library, 198 Bridge Street, Narrowsburg, New York. Exchange plants, seeds, bulbs with your neighbors and label your items with a plant name and information. See you there. Support for Farm and Country comes from Damascus Citizens for Sustainability, a community-supported, science-based nonprofit taking legal actions, providing tools for action, and raising awareness of fracking damage since 2008, proactively protecting public health in the Delaware River Basin and beyond. DamascusCitizens.org On this week's On the Media, YouTube has imposed a site-wide ban on all anti-vax content. But is it even possible to put the proverbial toothpaste back in the tube? Anti-vaxxers have been very open about the fact that they were going to use COVID as a way in 